0: In Wisconsin, I have a friend named Gino and he has a son whose name is Noah and Noah's four or five years old. I don't know how old he is. He's a little guy, super cute. And when you talk to Noah, one of the things that he always does, it's kind of like his token phrase, is if you say something that he doesn't agree with or doesn't like, he'll go, come on, man. And it's really cute to hear, like, this little four or five year old boy say, Come on, man. And he says it for everything. And what Noah's trying to say is that, like, really? Like, you're not going to do this? You know, come on, man. And he says it all the time. I think he says it so much, he really doesn't even know what he's saying. He's probably just heard his dad say it. But it's really cute when he says it. And as I was studying and preparing for, This weekend message, as I was reading through James, I kind of hear James doing this same thing to the body of Christ, where he's saying, Come on, Christians, you know, like, come on, man, like, you know, you know what the truth is, you know what you're supposed to be doing, you know what I'm trying to say, and you understand all these things because you're supposed to be a person who's been transformed by Christ. So come on, man, let's like get back to what we need to be focused on because you've gotten off focus. And so I believe that James has been calling the church through his letter out of selfishness. He's been calling the church out of this place of where we're treating each other poorly because we're so focused on ourselves and what we want and what we get out of the deal that we have been uh, treating other Christians Poorly, And he's saying, come on, you know better, you know what to do. And I believe what James has really been saying is that, is Christ really worth what truly is required of us to follow him? Is he worth the exchange? Is he worth... What Christ requires us to say no to in order to say yes to greater things. So if you have your Bible, we're going to wrap up our series today, going through the book of James. And we're actually going to start in James chapter 4. And we are going to go through James 5 today. But remember, in Scripture that the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They are put there for our reference. The words that are written are inspired, but chapter 5, verse 10, or whatever, those are not inspired. That's just for you and I to reference, which means that sometimes thoughts continue on in the letter beyond what the people who edited this and put those divisions in there. Those thoughts continue beyond that. And so we're reading a letter here, so we're reading a continuous thought And James actually switches gears just a little bit in James 4 and continues on through verse 5. And as we read it in context, it's going to help you to see that connection there and see where James was helping um, the people that he's writing to understand uh, these various warnings that he's given. So let's read James 4 and let's start in verse 13. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments uh, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have um, corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is a fun one. You have laid up treasure in these last days this was written to people who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus. So as we read this, we have to read this with that intent in mind. So as James writing these things, the first thing that he comes out of the gate saying here in chapter 4 verse 13 is the same thing my little buddy Noah was saying. He's saying, "Come on, man." Like, what? He's saying, "You know better than this. Come on, man." He says, come now, you're saying that, you know, I'm gonna do this today, I'm gonna do this tomorrow, I'm gonna make all these big plans. And he says, you're making all these plans arrogantly and you're not even considering what God would have you do or if God is even going to will for you to live beyond today. He said, your life's like a vapor, you don't even know. And here you are living for your own selfish pleasure and you're making all these plans. He said, if you know what the right thing to do is, verse 17, if you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it, he says, it's sin. So if you know what is right and you don't do it, it's sin. And then he, he goes on to talk to the rich and he says, come on now. Come on, man. Come on, you rich people. You're, you're supposed to know. Those of you who are Christ followers and you're wealthy... You're treating people poorly because instead of using your riches in a way that's going to honor and glorify God, instead of staying anchored in the gospel, instead of remembering the price that was paid for you, you're living your life selfishly, just heaping upon yourself all kinds of luxuries for yourself. And you've forgotten how to love people because you're treating other people poorly. This is not how people who follow Christ are supposed to live. He said, come on, man. Come on, you you know better than this. And he's trying to jar the Christian and trying to shake the Christian to realign themselves and refocus themselves to what God is calling them to do. Which is where we see the crux of these two different statements here in both chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's this idea that he says in uh, verse 17, where uh, he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him... He says, it is sin. And he's saying, come on, man, live like you actually know Jesus. Like, live like you actually know Jesus. Remember, he's reiterated this same thought all throughout this letter that he's written. He's reiterated this thought through saying things like, don't just be a hearer of the word but be a doer of the word? Don't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and then turns away from the mirror and forgets what he looks like? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. How can fresh water and salt water come out of the same spring? He's been saying these same things over and over again in different ways, and now as he's wrapping up this letter, he's making one last appeal to say, come on, guys, you know, you're living this way and you're being selfish and you've gotten your eyes off of the things that are gonna honor and glorify God because really what it boils down to is that you have neglected to examine the cost of following Jesus. And here would be my question for us to contemplate and to think on because all of us know often in our lives what the right thing is to do. So, where's the gap? Where's the disconnect between that challenge that happened when you read that scripture or heard that sermon or or did that devotion or whatever happened that God used to stir you to call you out of what you were doing, to call you into doing something that was going to honor Him, into doing something that was going to glorify Him? Where's the disconnect between that drawing, that calling, that moment, and you actually acting upon it? What's the gap? What's the disconnect? Because a lot of us will leave environments like a Sunday worship gathering, inspired, challenged, convicted, but yet are we taking what we've heard and is it translating into good fruit where we're actually walking it out and living it and applying the word that we heard? Or are we just hearing it, feeling good, feeling bad, feeling challenged, feeling whatever, and there's no fruit? You see, James is trying to make the same argument. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer, but don't deceive yourselves thinking that just because you heard it or just because you know it that you got it. Remember, the audience that he's writing to is dealing with Gnosticism, and Gnosticism would say that the more you know, the more spiritual you are, and so there's these secret levels of angelic knowledge, and just keep pursuing that, and the more that you understand and the more revelation you possess, all of a sudden you're now at a different level spiritually than other people. And James makes the argument, it's not just in the hearing. (laughs) Hearing is great, but you're deceiving yourself if you're hearing and not doing. So there has to be transformation attached to it, which means it requires faith for us to step out and to trust God and answer him. But the question that we need to ask ourselves in the disconnect is that does the right thing that God is calling us to Does it simply cost too much? And I want us to think about that question long and hard because the Sunday school answer is, no, Jesus is worth everything, right? The Sunday school answer is, no, I want to say yes to God. But often we know what is right to do and we know what God is calling us to and we know what God is challenging us to either leave behind or to embrace. And often we think about those things and we weigh them out and the reason we fail to act, the reason we become hearers and not doers is because the right thing God's calling us to, or the sinful thing God's calling us away from, we don't want to let it go. We, we like it, it costs too much. And Jesus has something to say about the cost of following him and being a disciple. Let's flip over real quick to Matthew chapter 8, and let's read Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 8, and we'll start reading in verse 18, so if you have your Bible, Matthew 8. 18, we're going to read through verse 22. Matthew 8. I hear all the pages turning, it's music to my ears. Matthew 8 and verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Stop right there. You've got right here a motivated volunteer. Now, as a person who has been in church leadership for my entire adult life, when you've got a motivated volunteer, you keep them motivated. And you go, all right, woohoo, I got a motivated volunteer who's willing to say yes, who's willing to be on my team. Awesome, we need help in the nursery, right? And Jesus, response to this guy, it's really, really not the response that I would want to give in that moment when I've got a motivated volunteer willing to sign up. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. He didn't go, Woohoo! all right, buddy, let's go. This is awesome. Saddle up, buddy. Let's go, partner. Let's do this. Jesus said this to a motivated volunteer. (laughs) Verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here in this moment, the motivated volunteer says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you, you go. And he goes, okay, I'm homeless. That's not what you want to tell the motivated volunteer. That's not the end of this story. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my, my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Um, <laughs> oh my, <laughs> that's pretty intense. Not what I would expect the response to be from someone who is enthusiastically wanting to sign up and be on Team Jesus. But yet this is the response Jesus gives. So is Jesus just being cold? Is Jesus being heartless? No, of course not. What is Jesus actually communicating to these people who are so eager to follow him? He's trying to let them know there's a cost. And he's trying to let them know the cost is great. The cost is actually everything. All the things that you would put before him, he's saying dull in comparison to following him and the treasure that you have in Christ and the way that you view Christ. Christ is saying, I'm more valuable than all of these other things. So these things that you would put in front of me these things that you would want to still hang on to. So I'll follow you as long as I'm comfortable. Well, I'm homeless. I'll follow you as long as I can still go tend to my family because when they would actually mourn and, and bury their dead relatives, it was like a really long period of time that would last for months and months and months. And Jesus is like, really? That's what you wanna do? You, you, you say you wanna follow me, so you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth here. He's saying, let the dead go bury their dead. It sounds heartless, but what Jesus is saying is that following me is worth more than you going through this long, huge period of being disconnected and, and mourning. He's saying, following me is more valuable. And so I think that when we are stirred, when we're, when we're moved, when we're um, compelled uh, by A pastor preaching a sermon or a book we read or something that we hear that inspires us or some challenge that's given. We want to say yes, and we do say yes. We go, yes, Jesus, yes. And he's like, "Mm, do you really know what it costs? Like, have you thought about the cost? Have you thought about what you're going to say yes to? Have you thought about what you're actually committing yourself to? Because I promise you this, church, authentic discipleship will exact from you the highest price relationally and physically. And the question we must ask ourselves is, is Jesus worth it? Because if the answer to that question is yes, and I mean if the answer is authentically yes to that question, not just Sunday school answer yes, because we like to say yes in church because we know we're supposed to, I mean, if we genuinely, authentically are saying, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Yes, Lord, I want to be used for your kingdom. Yes, Lord, I want to say yes to greater things. Yes, Lord, my life's not my own. I, I, I offer it and give it to you freely because you freely gave your life to me. If, if I'm making these types of statements, even singing these types of songs and making these kind of bold commitments and promises to the Lord, he's saying, have you, have you really counted the cost? Because if the answer truly is yes, then you cannot help but be transformed, like you will be completely transformed. It, you can't avoid transformation at that point. God will transform you in ways like you never could have imagined if you truly say yes, and you don't keep doing this back and forth, back and forth. But how, how quickly do we just Switch gears, how quickly do we like these people that James was talking about in chapter 5? How quickly do we just begin to think about our own comfort, our own luxury, and what we want out of the deal? And it causes us to get our eyes off of Jesus and we start treating other people poorly, not even knowingly, not like on purpose because we're jerks. We begin treating people poorly because we're not thinking about other people, we're thinking only about ourselves. And we're blinded to the effects of our actions. We're blinded to the effects of our words. We're blinded to the effects of our inaction. And all of our excuses of I'm tired or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just burnt out. And all these excuses of weariness that we give and all of the, the offense that we may be holding on to and all of the things that we may be, be enjoying or the things that we may be doing in spite of what God's calling us away from or into. Because we haven't truly counted that cost. Over in Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about this exact idea. If you want to turn there, you can. Luke 14 and verse 25. Jesus says something else fun. (laughs) Luke 14, 25, Scripture says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow, Jesus gives some pretty extreme examples yet again of this idea. He's not talking about emotionally hating your parents because he talks about honoring your father and mother. So that'd be very contradictory. And so that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this idea of valuing. You can't value your own blood relatives more than Christ. He's saying, I'm more valuable than them. And he's saying, it's like, if you wanna follow me, You have to think about like, you know, when someone goes out to build or when someone goes out to war, before they go and make these commitments to go and and build something or to go out and fight another army, they want to make sure that they have the resources and that they've prepared adequately and that they've thought about what all this is going to cost in order to to take this step. He said, this is how you have to think about following me. This is the, the weight of following me is that there's nothing more valuable than Jesus And he's saying that he's it. And he said that to those people who were making those wonderful commitments to him. And he was letting them know, guys, this costs more than what you realize. But if we truly begin to authentically, authentically say yes to Jesus, we cannot help but be transformed. Let's keep on reading in James chapter five. We left off in verse seven. James five and verse seven Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." So here he begins to talk about this idea of suffering. He transitions from chastising the brothers and sisters about this idea of selfish living and not thinking about other people and only thinking about yourself and treating other people poorly and all this uh, self-indulgence, self-gratification. And now he's telling them to be patient because Often in life, we don't want to delay gratification. We want it now, right? I want cake now, right? Like, I want it now. I don't want to wait, right? Uh, I want it now. And so often, you and I want things now, and we're so impatient with it that we can't think about anything else other than getting that thing that we want. And here... People are living selfishly and they're neglecting loving their neighbor. They're neglecting loving the body of Christ. Well, they're neglecting serving. They're neglecting to do the right thing. And therefore, because they're neglecting to do the right thing, he who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. And so here we have James setting this framework and now he says, and be patient, which means there's gonna be some delayed gratification that has to take place. There's gonna have to be some saying no to things that may appear good so I can say yes to greater things. That means that I may have to suffer through this delayed gratification. I may have to go through some challenges not getting what I want, when I want, and how I want it. And I don't know about you, but I like getting what I want. And this is James saying the Christ follower needs to be patient because you're not always going to get what you want, how you want it, when you want it. And we know this in principle until we actually face these challenges. And then Christ is calling us to suffer. This is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I want to be able to share in those sufferings by, if something costs me something that I want in this lifetime, I need to learn. I got to be patient because it's not about me getting what I want, but I have to trust in the process. I have to not lean on my own understanding. I have to trust in the Lord with all of my heart, not just in the areas where I kind of want God to help me get my way. (laughs) Because we all can approach our relationship with God in such a way where we want to leverage our relationship with God to get the things we want out of life. And God is saying, no, how about my will, not your will? It's not, God, let me see how I can use my relationship with you and leverage that to get what I want. No, it's let my will disappear and be submitted and humbled under the mighty hand of God. And so, Lord, that your desires can become my desires, so that I am transformed by your love, so I'm transformed by the gospel, where there was this big gulf in between humanity and God, and that gulf was sin, and Jesus came, and by his death, he fixed that gulf and made a way where there was no way that you and I could never have made on our own, but Jesus, through his sacrifice, made a way so that we can now, be called sons and daughters of God who were once called enemies of God? Folks, my response to that should be, yes, Jesus, you can have it all, amen? amen. Not you can have some. Not you can have the convenient parts, but Lord, you can have it all and I'm supposed to count the cost and I'm supposed to know that discipleship is going to require me to give it all but I don't give it begrudgingly I give it all willingly in response to what he has done for me on the cross and that's what authentic discipleship is last week we started this new hashtag thing that I want to do every week the bcc big idea kind of the sermon in a sentence and I want you to be able to have this uh, where you can where you can remember it something you can think on meditate share if you're using social media you can use the hashtag bcc big idea and here it is for this week Suffering well is to honor God no matter the personal cost. Suffering well is to honor God no matter the personal cost. So that means that I'm gonna count the cost and I'm gonna say, Jesus, you're worth it. And when I know the right thing to do that you're leading me or stirring me or challenging me to do, that instead of me going back to my selfishness, instead of me going back to criticism, instead of me going back to thinking more about myself than others, Lord, I want to humble myself and I want to say yes to you no matter the cost. I want to honor you in everything in life. That means I'm gonna honor you when things are going my way, which is super fun because it's easy. And I'm gonna honor you when things are not going my way. I'm gonna take the the, the the high road and I'm gonna to look to honor you by saying yes to the thing that I know is right, even though. I want to go back into selfishness when things aren't going my way. Even though I want to just get all swole up and angry at God or angry at other people and I want to make my big long list and hang on to it and be frustrated. Can I tell you that one of the enemy's biggest tricks and traps that he uses in the body of Christ is to isolate you away from the body of Christ? Because if he can get you to isolate, if he can get you off by yourself and get you to think, well, no one cares about me, No one loves me. No one wants me around. I have no value. And you begin to listen to those lies, entertain those lies. You begin to have a spirit of criticism, spirit of offense. You begin to uh, dwell on all these negative thoughts. The enemy will love to whisper all that junk in your mind when you're alone and get you to believe those things and nurture those things and those things begin to take root in your heart. And then sometimes those things can even be sown into other relationships beyond just yourself as you spread that negativity or those criticism and it becomes like wildfire. And that's what James is talking about here is he's saying be patient, don't grumble, verse nine, against one another. He's saying don't grumble against one another, don't allow this patient suffering that you're called to, don't allow this to be something where you get swollen up at God because it's not going your way. Instead, You need to be patient in that suffering. You need to love one another. You need to establish your heart because the coming of the Lord is at hand and you need to live in light of eternity because Jesus is coming back. And then he says you need to have the patience. You remember Job? That's a fun guy in the Bible, right? He had a couple of bad things happen to him, more than just nicks and bruises. He had a tough time, but he suffered well. He went through tough time, and we got to see that. We got to witness that through reading the story of Job with everything he lost and all the pain that he went through. And here, James is exhorting the Christians to remember Job, to remember his suffering, because he's calling us to be patient and to suffer well, even in the middle of the challenges that we may be facing. So suffering well is to honor God, no matter the personal cost. But how quickly... Do we shift over to grumbling and complaining? How quickly do we shift over to criticism? Are my reactions to things that aren't going my way, are they honoring to God? Because suffering well is honoring God no matter the personal cost. Or when it just doesn't go my way, do I run to gossip, to division, to slander, and the like? Because if I say I love someone, I need to love them. And and here he says, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. No. And he's reiterating the same ideas he's been talking about the entire letter. You remember he said, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Don't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and turns around and forgets what he looks like. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. He's giving these different dichotomies that we can often bounce in between. He said, uh, in chapter 3, he said, how can fresh water and salt water come from the same spring?" The same thing when Jesus said, how can a tree produce both good fruit and bad fruit? He said, no, either the tree's good and the fruit's good or the tree's bad and the fruit's bad. But a tree's known by its fruit. And he said, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth's going to speak. So what kind, of, what kind of fruit is your life producing? What kind of words are coming out of your mouth? He talked about the power of our words and the power of the tongue and how people were hurting each other with it and setting uh, like fields on fire with this small, tiny thing. And here we're supposed to guard our hearts. We're supposed to love one another, be anchored in the gospel. That's part of the cost of being a disciple is that I'm gonna preserve unity in the body of Christ. I'm gonna be a peacemaker, as Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. I'm gonna be someone who is speaking the truth in love. I'm gonna be someone who is looking to serve, who is humbling myself, as we learned last week in chapter four, humbling myself under the mighty hand of God and being patient, and trusting in his will and trusting in his timing, not just living selfishly, but I'm counting the cost, I'm living sacrificially. I wanna honor God with the way that I speak and the way that I live, because if I know what's right and I'm not doing it, scripture says that's sin, that's the definition of sin right there, to know what is right to do, to know what it means to honor God, to know what God is calling you out of or what he's calling you to, and just to ignore it and do something opposite or do something in direct violation to that or rebellious to, to that. For whatever the reason, we cannot justify those actions or inactions in the eyes of God. If he is calling us, he wants us to count the cost, amen? When you suffer well, you may be weary, but in your weariness, you have to continue to guard your heart, and this is the hard thing for us to do. And James wraps up his letter by addressing that. Let's finish reading James chapter 5. Verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, that word sick is not just talking about a physical sickness, because that wouldn't make sense with what he's been talking about this entire letter and he didn't just all of a sudden go oh yeah and god bless the sick people you know he's still talking about the same thing he's not bouncing around remember all these ideas have been connected thus far why would this one idea be so abstract to talk about physical healing sure yes we can pray that god heals us and we can pray god heals us physically but this word here in the greek that he uses for sick is the word weary heart He's saying, is any one of you exhausted because you've been suffering? Any one of you tired because you've been suffering? Is any one of you sick because you've been suffering? He said, call for spiritual leadership to pray, to anoint you with oil, to remind you that God's spirit stills on you and he's still in you and he still loves you. You need to be reminded of that. So call for those people so that you can be healed. He said, listen. You got to look at the context here. It'll help us. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Didn't say he would heal, said he would save the one who is sick, the one who's weary, the one who's exhausted, the one who's been beaten up and broken down and who's tired of taking the high road when it seems a lot easier just to go and live selfishly. When the cost becomes really heavy, and I need to be reminded. Of the faithfulness of God. I need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who are praying for me. He said, and the Lord will raise him up. And look at this if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So look at this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. What is he saying here? He's saying, confess your sins to one another. What is he dealing with? He's still dealing with offense in and among the brethren and the sisters in the body of Christ. He's still dealing with the same subject matter. He's not just pulling random fortune cookies out of the air. <laughs> He's not just pulling random random thoughts out of the air. He's still talking and anchored in the context of how when we started reading that the Christians were being so selfish and they were just living lavishly because they were living like kings and they were just indulging and doing only things that made them happy and, and they were missing out on the cost. And so James calls them back to the cost of following Jesus by reminding them to suffer well. He even reminds them of the sufferings of Job. And then he says, and if you're weak, if you're tired, if you've become sick, the body's supposed to be there to minister to you during that time as well, to encourage you and to lift you up. So don't isolate, don't run away, don't abandon. Don't, don't get stuck on yourself. Don't get stuck on your own way. No, 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 actually call the elders of the church. Let them pray for you so that you can actually be healed, so you can be saved, so you can be restored. And then if you have offense... If you've committed sins against one another, he says, confess those to one another that you might be healed, that you might be made whole. So if there's sin among you because you've sinned against each other, he says, confess, pray for each other that you may be healed. He's calling us back. He's saying, come on, man. Come on, man. Come on. Like, this is who we are. Come on. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What is he talking about here? He's talking about restoration. He's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about bringing back that prodigal. He's talking about that estranged relationship. He's talking about that person who's wandered from the truth. He's talking about that rich man that he was chastising earlier, that he was trying to shake and say, hey, you've gotten off track. Come on, man, let's get back on track. Come on, come now, he says. Come now, because this is who we're supposed to be, you know, to know what the right thing to do and to ignore it and to not do it, that's sin. And, and I'm calling you out of that. And I'm calling you back to faithfulness. And if it means you suffer, then you're gonna suffer well. Because Christ suffered well for you and I. And he's calling us to suffer well. And so that means I'm gonna honor God no matter what it costs me. Because suffering well is to honor God no matter the personal cost. He says the prayer of a righteous man is going to accomplish great things because God hears the prayers of persistent Christians who suffer well. God hears the prayer of the person who's wanting to be in right standing with God and who's trusting in Christ and not trusting in themselves and saying, Lord, I'm struggling with humility right now. Help me, God. I'm struggling with offense right now. Help me, God. Lord, give me the courage and the strength that I need to go have the conversation I need to have. Lord, help me to to look at the priorities of my life and evaluate because, Lord, I want to humble my schedule, my time, my priority before you because, Lord, I know I'm not just on this earth just to continue to suck air and just to live and just to get more head smarts. You want me to do stuff. You want me to impact eternity. You want me to live like I know that the return of the Lord is imminent. You want me to live like, My life matters and counts in eternity. And so you want me to realize that my life's just a vapor. You want me to realize that I shouldn't be so arrogant just to make all these selfish plans and and not prioritize you first and think about you. And and that that I should remember who I am, that I should remember whose I am, that I should be compelled in response and in awe of what Christ has done for me. That I should present my body as a living sacrifice. You're you're calling me to this place, and, and I know that. And if I ignore it, I'm I'm sinning, and I want to honor you, even if it costs me, because I've counted the cost, because I've thought about it, and I've said, Lord, you're worth it, you're worth it. Even if it means that foxes have holes, birds have nests, and you don't have a place to lay your head, then I don't have a place to lay my head if that's what it costs. It means that if I had a circle of friends that I was accepted by and all of a sudden the standard that i'm going to live by now costs me those relationships because i'm no longer cool enough to be hanging around with them because they want to prioritize life this way and do all of these things and i'm trying to say no god's calling me out of that then it costs me that means if it costs me my social standing that it costs me if it costs people understanding or liking me it costs me if it costs me financially if it costs me It costs me. If it costs me whatever with my time, well, I'm not going to get to do all the fun things that I used to do. Is Jesus better or no? Is he worth it? Have you thought about that before you said yes to Jesus? Because James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. A double minded man's unstable. And he's saying, come on, man. Come on, man. Come on now. Come on now. He says, come now, you who are rich. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow. Come on, man. I'm calling you higher. I'm calling you out of this because Jesus is worth it. He's enough. So investing in what Christ has called us to is our response saying, Jesus, you are enough. Sheep need to stop biting each other and start loving each other, amen? Serving one another investing in the next generation to ensure the gospel message outlives you and me. That we pray, we exhort, we repent, we encourage, we're patient in suffering and we suffer well. And when we're struggling, we do what the book of Acts did when the church began to bear one another's burdens. As Proverbs says, we sharpen one another. iron sharpens iron, so does one man's countenance sharpen another. We suffer with Christ because he's enough and he's worth it. He's changed my present. He's changed my eternity and he's changing my heart as I trust and I submit and I obey his word and I'm not just a hearer only, but I'm a doer. Over the past five weeks, we've gone verse by verse through the book of James. And my hope and my prayer is that through these sermons, through the study guides that we've put out, through you reading this, that the Holy Spirit has been at work in every one of your hearts. And my hope and my prayer for us as a congregation is that we, we would be a church full of doers who are saying, yes, Lord, all over this place, online, saying, yes, Lord. Here in this place, Lord, what are you requiring of me? Yes, because I want to know what is right to do and I want to do it. I don't want to be a person who looks in the mirror, turns around and forgets. I don't wanna be the person who gets emotionally charged after a sermon and walks out the doors and my life doesn't look any different. I wanna be different. And so we need him to help us in this. So Lord, help us in our suffering, help us to suffer well, help us to honor you no matter the cost, help us to live for you and to glorify you, help us to see the beauty and the value of Jesus that's bigger than anything that this world has to offer in Jesus' name, amen.